Some hot Thor on Thor action. I'd watch that. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds comic podcast, episode 62. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined by some other nerds, Carissa. Hello. And Rory. Hey. Together, we take on this week's comics. Each week, we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now and go read your week's books, then come on back. Each week, one of us picks their favorite book of the week, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd. This week, the pick of the week goes to Miss Marvel number 15. Our companion song is Talking in Your Sleep by the Romantics, because I think that that song has a lot to do with secrets that people are trying to keep, and like all 80s romance songs is super fucking stalker creepy, which really fits in with Miss Marvel, so... It's like the police song. I'll be watching you. Yeah, that's not a romantic song. That is a creepy-ass song, and Talking in Your Sleep is also in that same vein, so... Let's take a listen. So, Miss Marvel number 15 from Marvel Comics, Damage Per Second Part 2, written by G. Willow Wilson, pencils and inks by Takeshi Miyazawa, and colors by Ian Herring. So, this one, I mean, the plot's pretty simple. There's this person who's stalking Miss Marvel. Blanca, motherfucker. Yeah, he looks kind of like Blanca. He's an internet troll that she met in her World of Warcraft MMO that she's playing. He hijacked one of her friend's accounts, or one of her guildmates' accounts, and has been stalking her ever since, and can, like, possess all different kinds of computers and security cameras and everything. So there's this enemy that you can't see that's haunting her and stalking her and kind of knows all of her secrets. And she is really worried that he's going to reveal that she's Kamala Khan. And this is where I think that the story is really interesting because she goes to school super worried that her secrets are going to be outed. But you find out that all of these kids have secrets and that there's this girl who had sent some, they call them like personal items to her boyfriend. Nude. Yeah, yeah. They were sexting. Yeah, pretty much. And that those got leaked out. And the boyfriend swears he didn't do it. And everyone's kind of like whispering around her and staring at her and stuff. And then there's like her teacher kind of stands up for her, which I thought was pretty cool, where he's like, we don't shame anybody in this classroom. If you guys want college acceptance letters, you need to show me that you're actually adults and, you know, stop this. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then I also, there's this part in the lunchroom, which I thought really, to me anyway, struck a a note for that high school experience where you feel kind of outcast and you don't know where to go and then there's a group of people who are like come over here which i thought was really interesting that kamala is the first one who brings over the outcast person and tells them to sit Uh down because they don't Mm -hmm. judge anybody that everyone is human so i thought that was really kind of nice and interesting and then they start having this conversation with one of the immigrant girls who's talking about how she feels like she always has to be perfect because if she messes up they'll point at her and be like oh it's because your family's from you know iran or pakistan or whatever and your your culture's messed up and immigrants shouldn't be here. So she always has to be perfect, which I thought was really an interesting insight into how... I thought that was the girl that had the two moms. I thought both of them were talking about that. 
Okay, yeah, well, who knows? Yeah. I know Mike mentioned it. Because Mike mentions it, and then the other girl, who you might think that these two girls have nothing in common, but both of them being as part of, like, marginalized groups have to kind of always represent their group, and anything they do reflects on the entire group, so they have to be perfect. And I thought that was a really interesting insight. And then you get some kind of superhero punching at a construction site where the troll now it looks like can actually hack into people's brains and take control of them and give them, like, temporary superpowers. So Miss Marvel kind of brawls there. I found this part to be not uninteresting, but I found the other part to be way, way more interesting. So she does some brawling there, and now she realizes the person she's fighting isn't really the troll, that the troll can, like, take control of people now. And that even if you lock him in a jail cell, he still knows all her secrets, so that doesn't really solve her problem. And then the troll kind of reveals that there's this virus that uh, has been hacking into things, and she's trying to figure out who controlled the virus and, you know, how he created it and all of that. And there's the big reveal where he's like, I didn't create the virus. I am the virus, you know, while he's on her, like, FaceTime chat with her. I mean, overall, I thought the superhero stuff was all right. You know, pretty standard superhero punching. Nothing terribly exciting. But I thought the high school Mm -hmm. part was by far, yeah, (laughs) big hands, I know you're the one. But the high school stuff I thought was far more interesting and impressive to me. So what did you guys think of it? I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the high school stuff is uh, far stronger and more poignant, I guess. I just like the overall message about, like, cyberbullying and your exposure to the internet and, like, your secrets, like, dual life, the duality of it all. A good example of how comics take everyday problems and situations and lives and bring into the fantastical as, like, a story. I did find it was interesting when he's like, I can't get into your brain, which was the clue that... The troll is hacking people, but somehow Kamala is impervious to that on that level but it's kind of scary the idea that it wanted to uh, take control of her for some reason yeah. like that is their target like I have all the heroes they're going for her that was interesting I like the kind of social commentary that the story well in general that Miss Marvel has done from the beginning it has a current commentary on really now situations which I really like I also like that whenever Kamala has the opportunity she always shows like kindness and mercy and acceptance of people everyone in her high school is turning on this girl. And also Mike's hair on point. I like her her outfit and her hair. This issue, she was all there. She might be sad about her boyfriend being gone, but she, girl, <laughs> you look good. <laughs> She's rocking it. Yeah. From the artist, I really like the way that they draw the girl who had her pictures or texts or whatever shared to everyone. Uh-huh. How like closed off and like collapsed in she appears. Like she's like totally under attack by everybody and you can really see it in her body language. Yeah. I thought that was really good artistry there. Poor girl. When the cloud bursts and all your secrets get spilled everywhere, it's not good. What do you think of it, Rory? Well, fuck, you guys didn't leave anything for me to say. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, like we've talked about things that I like with both Ms. Marvel and with Champions, they're doing a really good job about like taking modern shit and bringing it into comic books. And I think that that's really awesome and interesting. It doesn't have to still be the Silver Age story of like, there's something going on. Let's go kick its ass. Yeah, exactly. So that was my pick of the week. I thought it had a lot to say and it did it in a not ham-fisted way that was pretty insightful. And... <laughs> ham-fisted. <laughs> <laughs> Giant ham fist the size of cars <laughs> smashing into your face. <laughs> and I thought that the superhero parts that she had were also pretty decent. So overall, that was my favorite title this week. It made me both laugh and smile and think about what the issue had to say. So that was my pick. I will give it four big hands. I know you're the one. I gave it four. You ate all my popcorns. And by the way, it was my pick. Ryan stole it. Just saying. That is true. <laughs> that is true. I'm going to give it four and a half, ten foot tall Jersey girls. <laughs> 
Alright. Now, off to outer space. Going to the Galaxy, number 17, Marvel Comics, written by Brian Michael Bendis. What's a Bendis? I know, right? Pencils and inks by Valerio Shitty, and colors by Richard Isanove. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Hi. This gets a little confusing because it's a departure from the Gamora separate issue. So this is Gamora grounded on Earth. So this picking that back up again. The Gamora issue is set before she joined the Guardians. It gets a little confusing because all the other ones are still in the grounded except for that one. So I was just clearing that up. She is on the hunt for Thanos and she wants him hard. He's like on the rooftops scoping out the place where she has figured out where he is. And then that's when a bunch like so Spectrum, Aurora, Miss Mar- America and Sasquatch all like come floating on their little light disc things. Yeah, the ones who can't fly. Yeah, Spectrum yeah. is making little hoverboards for them basically. So they have a little battle on the rooftops and I think it's really funny because Gamora does this really cool thing where she like uber upper body strength holds on to the upside down of a fire escape so when they look over the edge of the building they're like can she fly? Does she disappear? And they're like your dossier doesn't say anything like that and then I love it she's like do you think I run her fan page? <laughs> so she sneaks into like a bedroom of a total nerd geek. He has like a D20 pillow and like poster superhero posters up and action figures. He like wakes up and sees her and she's like, shh, and he's like totally freaks out. He's like, yeah. He looks terrified. I like her little guardian belt. They made her the little guardian logo very apparent in that panel. So she's sneaking through the, this dark apartment and then she gets whacked by Miss America. And it's like, whoa. And then they knock her out and then they capture her and they're taking her back. The next scene, I think probably might be my favorite favorite in a love-hate kind of way because again I'm just like it makes me so pissy at how Carol is being it's like are you really that dumb <laughs> really like I understand you're trying you think you're doing right the whole thing with the civil war thing but it's like look at her face look at those eyes you do not handle Lecter Gamora <laughs> Yeah, Gamora is not having it. She tries to, like, have this heart-to-heart, which is not really a heart-to-heart. It's her, like, (laughs) carol-splaining to Gamora. how she had to do this and you know no choice and you didn't listen and basically like kind of making herself feel better for her actions is how I see it (laughs) in this way I see it as Carol giving Gamora a reasonable option and telling her the truth you know Thanos isn't here get the fuck out you know I'll take you wherever you want to go but you can't stay here it's like throwing the drunk out of the bar at the end of the night she's gonna call him an Uber he just needs to get the fuck out you know same thing with Gamora go home but you can't stay on this planet Pretty much. That last panel after that. Oh, yeah. She's going to eat her face. She looks pissed. Gamora is so mad. It's like, ooh, that is not good. And the fact that Carol's like, okay, good. And like, hope we can see each other as friends. It's like, are you not looking at the woman in front of you, Carol? Are you that just not seeing the situation? Yeah, that I was like, that's never going to happen. I think she's used to getting that look, though, really. I mean. So then Gladiator of the PR show up and like Abigail is like, thank can't greet you in person and then the right part was like that's not her that's not Gamora her, that's a completely <laughs> different hue of green what they all look the same to you yeah. like, <laughs> like the fact that he points it out and it's like some it looks like the person drew Kamala but with green because it totally looks like Kamala it does but it's, it does. <laughs> but it's not it's random flight deck hand number two or something I don't know who that is Kamora did kind of the reverse of where you see the guard in the uniform and you take their uniform yeah. she grabbed one of the people and made them look like her and put them in the containment Suit. And it goes back to the Triskelon, Triskelon, whatever you how you say that. Triskelon, I think. And then I said it right. Shield agents running the guards, talking about how 
I made up getting battle pay. And then there's like a reflection where, because they have like a kind of orangey red glass visor. And in the panel, you know, the light hits it just right. And it, you know, they make it clear and you see Gamora's eye. So you're like, oh, there she is. And there's explosions and she gets inside, yada, yada, yada. She realizes that nothing's there and it was a trap and they <laughs> lock her in. Go, Carol. But the fact is, Gamora still got out. She did still pull one over. Uh, well, Carol says to her, oh, you managed to hack into our computers and find the exact location? Wow, that was really easy. I think Carol clearly set her up to think she was escaping and then get down into this Thanos containment center. Carol didn't tell the other people because they were very shocked about the person switcheroo. But ooh, that panel, right after she sees the hall, Gamora has like this grimace on her face. It's like, ooh, man, they do some really yeah. good. I am pissed <laughs> off Gamora face in this book. Yeah. Mm. She is mad. <laughs> very, very mad. I just don't think that's very smart. I don't think it's going to hold her that long. Yeah, he's just pissing her off. <laughs> it's just making it worse. Especially in this situation where Carol has pretty much already started alienating a ton of people from her life and has made some bad calls and she's just still doing it. I mean, honestly, she can't make Gamora any more mad at her. You're going to trick her. Trick her onto the spaceship and get her off if that was your goal. That's the problem. Problem is she said that she can't just send her off with the Shi'ar Empire like she originally wanted to because Gamora doesn't believe that Thanos is gone. So if she booted her off of Earth, she would just come back. I don't think it's going to work. I think there's going to be a reckoning to pay here with Gamora. Expressive drawings of Gamora. Just like, man, that bitch going to kill you. <laughs> kind of like- Yeah, there are some murder eyes in here, definitely. Yeah, lots of them. <laughs> the facial expressions on this were amazing and classic. This is one of my favorites of the week. So I gave it... A- a three and three quarter. I don't want her fan page. I liked it more than that. I'm going to say I'm going to give it four. I want battle pay. I will give it three and a half. I told you the truth. I told you to leave. All right. Still sort of in space. Marvel space. Marvel space. And also Guardians of the Galaxy 2 got a perfect rating on its pre-screeners. Isn't that cool? Ooh, that's exciting. All right. So we've got the Unworthy Thor number four. Thor number four. Marvel Comics War of the Unworthy written by Jason Aaron. Pencils and inks for the present day by Oliver Copiel and Kim Jacinto. Young Thor by Fraser Irving. Worthy Thor by Esb. Bad Ribic? Esad Ribic. He's the one who did the Thor arc that had the God Killer. Oh, awesome. And then Unworthy Thor by Russell Dodderman. Colors by Matthew Wilson, Matt Miller, and Fraser Irving. Okay, so it basically starts off with Thor sitting there, and this one, it jumps around quite a bit between the various points in Thor's life. So he's starting off, he's sitting there, and he's like picking up Mjolnir, trying to, all pissed off. He can't manage to pick it up, so his mom's sitting there like talking to him like why are you still messing with this how he's like you know i've got a destiny and i've killed off all these dragons and saved villages and blah blah and i'm doing all this stuff and i'm still not worthy like what do i have to do to be worthy at which point his mom's talking about how the hammer doesn't make you a better god but he's still like obsessed with obviously getting his hammer because it's his fucking hammer i like this part because the young thor is convinced that his deeds that he's doing to become worthy to get the prize are what 
is going to make him worthy, but it's kind of like as long as he's trying to win the prize, mm-hmm. he's being selfish. He's not doing it for the goodness of the deed. He's doing it to win the thing. Very similar to yeah. kind of like Hellblazer as well. So I like this part because I like the mom's like, no more dragons for you. Off to bed. <laughs> then it skips away, shows Thor going through all these battles and shit like that. He's all bearded up and shit with his axe. But he's talking about how today I'm fighting to be worthy and da 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 Him and uh, Betamax Bill. <laughs> God damn it, it's Beta Ray Bill. <laughs> Betamax! Betamax Bill is pretty funny, though. I'll give you that. The perfect companion for unworthy Thor. <laughs> Beta Ray Bill is a badass. <laughs> Stormbringer is awesome. They called him Horseface in this one. <laughs> they did, yeah. Ugh, Cretans, what can you expect? They're going to old Asgard. It's like a big battle over who's going to get the hammer. And so you have the Collector's folks who are going after it, Thanos' folks who are going after it, and then you got Thor showing up. Or, I'm sorry, uh, Odinson trying to show up and get his shit. So then this big battle off that's getting ready to happen happen then flash forward to another scene why do i always get the ones with all the flashbacks <laughs> i thought having the different artists makes it really clear when you're having flashbacks though so i thought that that is very me, true i thought that worked reading it is great describing it sucks balls so <laughs> <laughs> then there's a flashback to thor in asgard and he's sitting there and he's like mean mugging his hammer <laughs> yeah. jane foster comes up and she's like why are you sitting there like looking at your hammer like you're afraid to touch He's like, I am afraid to touch it. I'm afraid that one day I might not be able to pick it up. And so he's like talking about how he sits there and he looks at it and then he'll pick it up to prove that he's obviously worthy. But he's always worried about the time when he's not going to be worthy and someday that might happen. I thought that dialogue that they had about that, Uh, about being worthy and how you have to always be worthy. It's not just like one time you did it and now you can do it forever. I thought that was really cool. Exactly. That panel where he actually lifts up the hammer, how they have a kind of split there and you see it just lifting up like half an inch or whatever. I thought that was really well done. I love Isad Ribic. I think he's, oh my god, I love his art. Yeah, between that flashback and the one with the mom, I think are my two favorites out of this issue. All these parts keep looping back on the Uh idea of being worthy. Mm Mm-hmm. But it ain't over yet. <laughs> yeah, there's power goats and fire-breathing werewolf hellhound. <laughs> it's Thori. It's the hellhound that Angela found at the end of uh, her Angela one. I thought Christina would really like seeing Thori running around <laughs> talking about murder. <laughs> so there's like a big-ass brawl as Thor comes down and joins into this fucking battle as we flash back to present day. That was a really cool-ass battle scene, too. And then the collector shows up like, You all belong to me! <laughs> He's on this flying platform with these like chains that he wraps around his neck and like pulls him away from the hammer. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, there's all kinds of shit going on. But it flashes to nine months ago in Asgardia. Odinson is sitting there and he's staring at the same point where he had his hammer. He's just basically like just standing there and it's like he hasn't like slept. He hasn't ate. He's just been chilling, thinking about how fucked up mm. everything is and how much he sucks. And he's belly aching. Basically, one of his people. I don't know who that is. If it's anybody of importance. That's Jane Foster. That's Thor. Oh, she gets cancer. Yeah, so that's Uh, kind of like a cool little mirror to it, right? They're in the same room at the same thing, but they're at a different point in time. Ah, okay. And she's trying to give him the pep talk, and he doesn't know that she's Thor. There's a lot of, like, subtext going on here. Yeah, when he says, you don't know how it feels to hold it, and I'm like, yeah, she does. (laughs) And then he's like, I'm gonna go drink. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna lift the only thing I still can, Mead. Then back to battle. Some nice, badass scenes of Thor riding his power 
power goat around. This snatch. And then someone's like, someone stop or kill that goat. <laughs> it always makes me kind of like smile and be amused when you see Thor riding on his gigantic war goat. I think it's just uh-huh. awesome looking. It doesn't look like anything else I've really seen before. So, And the goat has personality too. <laughs> I like the little picture where you have Thori, the little hellhound trying to lift the hammer. He's like, it tastes yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was hilarious. Thor is trying to fetch. He's good dog. <laughs> you know, I liked that. I thought that was a cool scene right there, too, where it's like dialogue that was there. I haven't seen the stars or the faces of my friends. Haven't heard my mother's. That particular lead into that was badass. He's talking about like how he's been depriving himself of everything and how it's, he's cranky. He's angry. That final panel where he's standing there with his hand on the hammer. And you don't know if he's going to actually be able to lift it. It's so fucking metal and epic. I just I love it. <laughs> well, you know, the lightning helps. Yes, there's lightning and there's a like, guy with a cape flapping in the wind and a giant fucking hammer axe thing and yeah it should be the cover of like a late 70s early 80s heavy metal album definitely <laughs> i would say you know it's a good thor panel if it could go on the side of a van oh, yeah. <laughs> ryan just wants a van with theta ray bill chilling on the side i'd drive that <laughs> hell yeah <laughs> we're gonna go up and tag it max <laughs> Betamax Bill. <laughs> I really like Beta Ray Bill. I know maybe some people don't or don't know that much about him, but he's pretty cool. I'm going to give it three and three quarter notes is not a whisper. Well, mine's very similar. I gave it three and three quarters a whisper I still cannot unhear. Well, this was almost my pick of the week. This was neck and neck. I think as far as comic book action hero punching, this is probably better than Miss Marvel in that aspect, but I felt like the Miss Marvel part had more to say about our current world. A little bit more. So that that was why that was my pick. But this was a second closed one. I will give this four large hungry goats. So that's going to take us over to DC to Suicide Squad number 11 from DC Comics, Burning Down the House. Part one. There's two stories here. The first one is Life Inside, written by Rob Williams, pencils by John Romita Jr., inks by Richard Friend, colors by Dean White. The second one is Life Outside, also written by Rob Williams, pencils by Eddie Barrows, inks by Ever Ferreria, and colors by Adriana Lucas. I always like Suicide Squad because it is always, to me, kind of a manic, fun little ride. Like the characters that they have in it. I really hope the tiny hands are referenced. To Donald Trump. Trump. I'm pretty sure it was. Killer Croft's going, my hands are tiny. Oh, when he gets embiggened yeah. by the Enchantress. So this one is Rustam, who is part of the Justice League versus Suicide Squad storyline. And you find out uh-huh. as part of the original Suicide Squad, he's kind of cutting his way through the prison to free all these people, which is, you know, pretty badass going on. And then you've got the Suicide Squad, who I don't really like Harley Quinn's, like, power armor that she's wearing. Oh, yeah. I did not like that very much. But they're on a mission. I did like the stuff like you were saying with uh, Killer Croc and the Enchantress. Mm-hmm. You know, that she's using her magic on him to make him bigger and stronger. And I like when she enlarges him. He's like, I love you. <laughs> and like just starts smashing stuff. <laughs> yeah. So they're in this base trying to get this stuff. There's this technician when Flag is trying to stop him from like hitting the button to do the thing. And he's like, I surrender. And he keeps like crawling towards the thing because he's like, you're an American soldier under the Geneva Convention. Uh-huh. If I surrender, you can't, yeah. you can't shoot me. 
and then Deadshot just like shoots him in the head. <laughs> He's like, I'm not a U.S. soldier, and I don't give a yeah, fuck no, about okay. the Geneva Convention. So Yeah, I saw that coming. He takes his two shots, one in the head and one in his hand, to blow his hand off so it doesn't hit the button accidentally. So I thought that was kind of a neat little scene there. So then the Suicide Squad, they're like, we've been fighting the Justice League and saving the world, and we want some R&R. So they ask the new head of the Suicide Squad if they can have some R&R. So they send them out to New Orleans. And this is where I think it gets, to me, interesting. So Amanda Waller has been like kind of kicked out of the Suicide Squad. She's the same way in Marvel that after Pleasant Hill, Maria Hill was kind of on the outs with S.H.I.E.L.D. It's kind of the same idea. So there's this big prison riot, and Amanda Waller is inside the Suicide Squad, and she's like in the chamber where Zod is, which is like the big weapon that they've found in previous arcs that they have contained. And the new head of the Suicide Squad comes in as like, you know, Amanda, you're like drunk, and you're in like the most dangerous place on Earth. You can't be here. You have to leave. So she's like, I'll take you wherever you want to go. And she's like, well, I want to go to New Orleans. And they're like, oh, that's weird. Did you know the Suicide Squad was on break there? And she's like, hmm, what a strange coincidence. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> like, bullshit, you didn't know. Yeah. Then you get some little scenes of the Suicide Squad relaxing. Like, I really like the ones with Boomerang and the strippers. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Where he's trying to be like a sleazebag, but since he's come back from the dead, he can't anymore. Yeah, that was hilarious, I thought. And then I do like the way that uh, Harley Quinn looks when she's sitting in the diner. I think that's way better than that stupid power armor. <laughs> and I like her little Watchmen hat thing that she has. I think that's kind of cool. She's like sitting across from a bank looking at it. And they're talking about how yep. she's casing the joint, but she can't bring herself to do it because the Suicide Squad is kind of changing her into actually being a good person. And I love this part where she's like, maybe I'm just waiting for the right person to walk by so I can hit him with my hammer. And then they look away from the window and that's the moment that Amanda Waller like walks <laughs> yeah. right by the window. Yeah. Oh, that was great. So then you get the life outside storyline. And this part is kind of the part that is probably going to have big impacts throughout the DC universe. So Amanda Waller is kind of drunk, wandering through like Bourbon Street in like New Orleans, and this like mugger basically comes to her in the alleyway and ends up shooting her, which I thought was really interesting. But there's a part here that makes me think that this is all part of her plan. That Chief Helby wants them to think that she's dead. Because he's like, the mugger is like, any last request before he shoots her? And she says, yeah, don't miss. So at first, I was like, is that because she wants to die and she doesn't want him not to kill her? Or is it that she'd set up that if mm-hmm. he shoots her in a specific place, it'll look like she's dead but won't actually kill her? I don't know which one it is, but I thought the uh, the panels of her actually getting shot were really good. Where they show just like the little pinhole from the bullet and then you see all the blood spreading out from it. I thought that was really well done. This one was not quite as zany as I was hoping for, but I thought it was still pretty solid. I really liked Killer Croc in this one. I thought he was pretty great, him and the Enchantress. That has to be probably my favorite part. That plot point with her being shot is very interesting. I'm like, I want to know where they're going to go with that. But I also did like the dead shot with his daughter interacting. Oh yeah, I kind of skipped over that part. That was good too. That had the feely, the touchy feely. So I like that part. Where she tells him that, you know, I know you kill people and I don't care. Mm-hmm. Normally, I I usually can't really stand Suicide Squad because it's usually just kind of like discombobulated chaos and fucking plotline written by a fifth grader. But this one I actually like quite a bit. The intro story was pretty cool, but like once they actually got on this whole like we're taking vacation thing, I thought it was interesting to see like the other side of a lot of the characters, particularly the Deadshot scene that you skipped over. (laughs) (laughs) I was concentrating on Amanda Waller. To me, that was the... Definitely was like the climax of it all. Like all men, I'm just concerned with the climax. I don't care about the lead up. Oh, man. 
<laughs> take your time, man. <laughs> you gotta enjoy the good stuff while it's there. <laughs> I actually enjoy this. I normally fucking hate Suicide Squad. Here's another question. How fucked up do you have to be if you're sitting there drinking in front of a chained down Kryptonian? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just generally, you know, when you're drinking fucking whiskey, bad things can happen. And <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in front of the most dangerous Kryptonian in history getting drunk just in case a drunken oops moment happened, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think Amanda Waller just doesn't give a single fuck about anything anymore. Or at least she wants oh, you to no think doubt. that. I mean, I can't believe that Amanda Waller doesn't have a double secret plan that's gonna this all be revealed. Oh, yeah. I also like the part where she says, don't miss. It made me think about The Wire, you know, where they talk about, you know, if you uh-huh. come at the king. Coming for the king, don't miss. That's right. Best not miss. I thought that was a little reference to that there, too. Interesting. So I think I will give it three and a half, don't miss. I gave it three tiny hands. I'm going to give it three and a half, ain't that a shot to the heart. Star Wars, Dr. Aphra, number four, Marvel Comics, Aphra, book one, part four, written by Karen Gillian, pencils and inks by Kev Walker, colors by Antonio Fabella. So where we last left off, and I don't think our last covering of that issue made it to post, not to mix brands, but they lit basically the Jedi equivalent of the Gondor light. So they put the crystals in, her Aphra and her father... And all of a sudden, Yavin 4 and whoever else, wherever else, the lights, huge beacons of lights are emitting from the temple top, the pyramid tops. Big beacon to everyone. And so their distraction of uh, Black Kastan, I can never say his name, the Wookiee. I think it's just Black Kastan, but I'm not sure. His distraction of getting the Imperial forces out in the jungle was only a minor distraction because once those beacons went off, they knew exactly where they needed to go. And so Afra and the droids are like, we gotta go. We don't have much time. And her dad's there doing like weird equipment measurements. At first he was gawking and then he was trying to get his information that he needed. And she, you know, she's doing the whole kind of, you know, very Indiana Jones. We got to get out of here. We got to go. She definitely is evil Indiana Jones. She was right. They were coming. There's a couple kicks and stuff like that. And then as we love, there is the moment of BT and Triple Zero being their murder droidy selves. <laughs> oh, that was great. The father was like, no, I need to get the crystals back off the floor. I want them, you know, the artifacts. And BT said, shoots grenades into the temple with the oncoming Imperial troop. I love the little sound effect for the grenades coming out, the chump that they have. I think that's a really good little... <laughs> She's like, BT, slow them down. You know, Triple Zero's like, yes, I agree. Being dead should slow them down. Aw, Triple Zero. Those murderous droids are the best thing about any Star Wars book they're in. It is. Like, I mean, I just look for those panels. I'm like, come on, they gotta be in here somewhere. It won't be a good issue uh. if they don't have at least some sort of line. And it's great to their benefit that it's different each time. They're not just reusing the same jokes. It's a little different. Triple Zero <laughs> calls BT a rust bucket, which really pissed him off because there are some droid expletives going on. <laughs> yeah, I thought R2-D2 was foul-mouthed, but I think BT might have him beat. So as they're trying to escape, they're going a, a way they hadn't come in into that temple, and because that way was blocked, and then they find themselves at basically a dead end, and face-to-face with an AT-AT. This part was a little confusing to me. Like, I understand at the end what happened, yeah. but kind of the middle of this fight gets a little confusing to me. The head Imperial officer chick comes up with her stormtrooper. She makes it back from the jungle somehow in record time, I guess. I guess they were tooling around in there longer than you think. And she's like, don't worry, Dad, I can handle this. And she's like, I like, she's like, we're lost? And they're like, open fire. And she's like, what? And then like, cover me. So then BT does like a smokescreen cover because she knows that 
the Wookiee was coming back with their ship, the Archangel. They hurry and run on the plank of the ship and, you know, she's like doing the go, go, go. How he snuck by the Adat in the first place, I don't know, but he did. But then it starts firing on them as they're leaving. And I I love the part. She's like hanging on. She barely made it onto the gangplank. She's like, I hate my job. And he's like, the dad was like trying to give her a compliment. That was very kind of old Jones, new Jones in that scene. There's the heart to heart with the dad and her. She's like, never mind, we're going to your coordinates. I just want to get this over with. She tries to play all like tough guy. And then it cuts to this really weird scene, which I guess they're going to expand on this later that the Imperial chick has, I guess, been in trouble before. And they're like, do you want us to report this? And like, it just skips by where she doesn't give the description of who they ran into. So Vader won't find out that it was Afra. Any sort of like description at all. I think that probably would have given it away. But there's definitely more going on there than you realize. And now they think there's something more going on with Yavin and the Rebels, even though what Afra and her dad therefore have nothing to do with the Rebels, at least not that we know of. It's more archaeological in nature. Right, but they think they're with the Rebellion. So if the Rebellion went back to the temples or something, there's got to be something there. They follow the coordinates that the dad got when the beacons went off, and they show up, and it's like this half-planet moon that's been broken up. At first I thought it was going to be like an Alderaan thing, all you saw was rocks flying at the ship. Yeah, it's a temple that's carved out of the side of an asteroid, is what that is. Reminds me of Petra. Yeah, I didn't know they wore beanies in Star Wars. That was new, and earmuffs. <laughs> and her puffy coat. I was a little confused by that before, so I'm like... Space is cold, alright? They find a bunch of... They, well, they look like dried corpses of Jedis, because they're like... Some of them are holding round-looking, like, lightsaber handles yeah, laying nice. around. She's like, this is about as real as it gets. Yeah, dead corpses. So that's interesting. I'm curious to see the history and what they're going to reveal about this culture and how it ties into, like, Jedi. Good Star Warsy action. Lots of humor, good artwork, pretty much everything you can ask for. Captain Tolvin. I think part of the reason why she was hiding all the details is because, as you heard, she's now serving under Lord Vader. And so <laughs> if she goes voicing her failures that, you know, she allowed Dr. Aphra to escape, well, then she's probably going to end up dead. I don't know if she knows who Afra is in the relationship, but I think you're right that she doesn't want to reveal details about what happened because Vader will force choke the shit out of her. Really reading this made me think, why don't we have an Indiana Jones comic? Because this feels like space Indiana Jones. I gave this four. It doesn't get much realer than this. I'm going to give it four. I'm built for finer things in life. I will give it three and a half chumps. I love that little sound effect for the grenades. Yay, Tegas is a werewolf action! Aw, yeah, some hot werewolf action. We got Moonshine number five, Image Comics, written by Brian Azzarello and art by Eduardo Rizzo. We left off in Moonshine number four. Perla was going through the woods chasing after Tempest. A naked Tempest. Naked Tempest. They were going to get it on. And so he is going through the woods and stuff, and she, like, sneaks up on him, and he gets all, like, freaked out. She basically says, if you're scared, maybe you shouldn't be following me. And he basically says, oh, I'd follow you to the gates of hell. So then she, like, pushes him against a tree, bites the shit out of his lip. Key point. Yeah. I was like, hmm. And they make sweet, nasty love under the uh, pale moonlight. So then Perlo wakes up the next day, like, still passed out in the fucking grass, which, that's got to itch. I'm just 
just thinking. <laughs> For sure. Well, yeah, the line where he's like, I wake up alone, usually I prefer it that way. Yeah. <laughs> I like it when they're gone when I wake up. <laughs> yeah, oh, you're a winner. He wakes up, and then she's nowhere to be found, and then he goes walking through the woods and runs into Tempest and her dad, Mr. Holt, with his shotgun. And then he's like, you know, oh, you've done pissed me off. He ain't too pleased. He locks Perlo up in, like, a shed, chains his ass up naked. Yeah, there's lots of man bit going on in this. Oh, yeah, there's some serious wang action in there. Something for everybody. It's true. But he tells him, he's like, you struck me as a smart man. I know that you've got no character. He goes, but I thought you were smart. And he's like, and here we are, and you proved me wrong, and that pisses me off. He basically tells him that all this stuff is your doing. He's like, I gave you a chance to leave. Now you're never going to. And then he walks out after he leaves him, like, chained up and, like, basically with, like, a dog dish of water. A moonshine, I think, is actually what it is. Is that what that is? I wasn't sure. Yeah, because he pours it out of the jar, so. Well, it's not like they have solo cups and shit. <laughs> he leaves him chained up, and then you can see, he like, he's having, like, hallucinations where his dead little sister is, like, talking to him. Well, I assume that since he's got the flies buzzing around his head and shit, that he's drunk as shit. I, I don't know if that's what they were trying to, like, say. It's stinky. Yeah, I don't know. He could be having moonshine hallucinations, or this book does seem to have, like, a, you know, supernatural element, yeah. so she could actually be a ghost. Who knows? And then the brother comes in, they're like, basically, like, check in on him, and he's telling him this is a shitty way to die, and he's like, oh, it's even a shittier way to live. I thought that was a good line. Then in town, have all the mobsters are, like, congregating in town. They've tried to raid the Holtz moonshine supply, because that's the whole point that they're going after. And so there's basically a bunch of gangsters sitting in the shop getting ready, and also two guys pull up. Everybody's, like, real concerned about it and stuff. One guy who's, like, a creepy-looking old man, imagine the guy from uh, Poltergeist, and then there's another guy who's only speaks Italian, and he's called The Hunter. Did myself the favor of actually looking up what they were saying. Good job. Saying the devil's close, and I can't remember what Los Senti means, but... Just going from Spanish, I think that's probably, like, sorry, like, I'm sorry, or are you sorry? The only speaks Italian guy's name's The Hunter in Italian. Italian. They're like, oh, are you going to be joining us? He's like, no, 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 no. We're here to get a job done. They figured out there's either werewolves or there's something bigger and badder than what they can take on. And so these guys are like the heavy hitters, the elite squad. Then it goes back to Herlo chained up and there's a werewolf in his little shack, like staring at him and drooling on him. Good panel. I like how those were drawn. I like that. How the like drools like dripping into his mouth. And it wakes him up and his chain's broken. When he actually fully wakes up, the werewolf is gone. It makes me think that that is a dream that he's having. I think he's the werewolf, and this is his fever dream about turning into the werewolf and breaking the chain. Well, I didn't think it's funny, like, when the brother was in there, he's like, yeah, silver. And he's like, well, there's a silver lining. Yep, thought that was good, too. He goes sneaking out, and then he runs into Tempest in the middle of the woods. She says, I'm here right where you want me to be. And he's like, no, I don't want any of this. And she's like, that's not true, saying you want all of this. It's like, it's all his fault, and you let it happen. Nothing happened that you didn't ask for her eyes start glowing and looking evil and shit. He's on his knees in front of her and you see his head at first and then that last panel her hand is still on his head but it's not his head anymore. It's a werewolf head. Yep. Thanks for stealing my thunder. <laughs> and then it's like a witch. That's the lady he met in the woods. Yeah. So obviously he's been turned into a, a werewolf. 
one thing this does is you don't know what's real, like what's a hallucination, what's the supernatural, what's just being drunk off your ass. Like, <laughs> I think it balances those things really well. So it keeps you kind of confused about the nature of what's really happening without being an incoherent mess. I still get pleasantly surprised by this comic. The fact that you know I'm going to like because I like werewolves. The situation feels right for the time period and it's interesting. It keeps you guessing. There's lots of layers going on and with the hallucinations and stuff like that. So I really do enjoy it. And the werewolves are drawn really well. So bonus. I'm going to give it four. No, 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 no. <laughs> I gave it four and a quarter silver lining. Oh, I was going to use that. I will give it three dog dishes of moonshine. So I'm taking us over to a new Rebirth from DC. Justice League of America, Rebirth number one. DC Comics, written by Steve Orlando. Pencils by Ivan Rice. Inks by Joel Prado and Eau Claire Albert. Colors by Marcelo Maoli. This one, I'm just going to be real quick here with it, because this is kind of a steaming pile of shit. <laughs> it's not actually that bad. All the individual parts are okay, and it's drawn competently and all that. I just could not give less of a shit about the people involved in it. Nope. <laughs> Which is fine. Like, you can have an issue that starts out with characters you don't care about, and then they make you care about them. But as I read this, there was nothing that made me care about these people or why they were together as a team, any of that. It was just completely uncompelling to me. So Batman is putting together a Justice League to show the world that regular people can make a difference, I guess, basically, is the point of the Justice League of America. They're not gods. It's, you know, it's not Wonder Woman and The Flash and Superman and all that. But the people he picks, though, are still hella powerful. But they're anything but normal fucking humans. <laughs> exactly. Like, if it was all, like, a league of, like, Batman and normal people who make a difference, yeah, I could see that. But it's like, Lobo is not a fucking normal person, you First know? First of all, he's not even fucking human. He's a fucking alien. Space dancing. Yeah, I mean, I like Killer Frost. I think she's probably the most interesting one. And I also like Black Canary, but she's so uninteresting here. Black Canary in Green Arrow is really interesting. It's a really interesting character. And here, she's just really flat, uninteresting. So you have Lobo, you have Vixen, you've got Killer Frost, you've got Nova Ripoff, whose name I don't remember, Black Canary, and Batman. So a whole bunch of people I don't give a flying fuck about doing a bunch of shit I could not care less about. With decent art. So, I mean, if you like one of those characters, if you're like, damn it, I don't get enough Vixen in my comic books, then here you go. This is for you. But there's probably like two of you who care about her. So in that case, enjoy it, because I sure didn't. It reminds me why I don't like DC. <laughs> I want to stress that I don't think it's bad. I just don't care about it. There's nothing interesting about it. Like, it's not a poor story structure. It's not poorly drawn. None of that. Everything is forced. It's a bunch of characters that I really don't give two fucks about. You have Batman, Lobo, and everybody else is basically about as interesting as they've made it. Doesn't really make sense what he's trying to do because it's like Batman's trying to put together this team of normal folks, but he gets a bunch of superpowered folks that all have superpowers and then a fucking alien. And we're going to get these guys together to show Earth that normal people can do it and it's like no motherfucker you've got a bunch of fucking super powered fucks you know it's no different than the other yeah, exactly I mean the Adam is a normal person who made something you know so I could see that being a normal person he's like your Iron Man stand in you yeah. know 
other than that, it's like they're all super powered. <laughs> it's just doesn't honor its own premise, you know? It's just dumb. It's forced and it's dumb and none of the characters are interesting. They throw Lobo in there to fucking pull some people in, I guess, is how, how it goes on. I would probably recommend you skip this one unless you really, really don't get enough Killer Frost and Black Canary team-ups if that's your jam. If you're looking for some heaping doses of space Danzig, well then, this one's for you. Or if you just really like shitty comics. If your taste is horrible... I just imagine people listening to this yelling at <laughs> This comic's for you. Your headphones at us. Hey, if you disagree, go to our Facebook page or send us an email at fourcolornerds.com and tell us why this is a good comic. Because if you could point it out to me, because I don't see it. To me, this is not good. But I'm willing to listen to to our dear listeners who may have an insight that I yeah, didn't Yeah, it looks nice. The story it. sucks my balls. That's kind of my point, is it's competently told. It's just not interesting, and the characters I could not care less. I don't care about them. And they gave me no reason to care as the story went on. I will give it two batarangs. The only thing that saved this for me was that I did like the artwork. I mean, but the story, and I'm a Batman fan. I love Batman. Yeah, I'm not shitting on the artwork. The idea could be interesting, but I'm going to give this two steaming piles of shit just because the artwork was good. Two space cod pieces. All right, Chris, uh, help redeem some DC for us. Detective Comics, number 950. DC Comics, League of Shadows Prologue, Shadow of a Tear. Written by James Tinian IV. Pencils and inks by Mark Takara. Colors by Dean White. Higher Powers, written by James Tinian IV. Pencils by Alvaro Martinez. Inks by Paul Fernandez. Colors by Brad Anderson. And The Big Picture, written by James Tinian IV. Pencils by Eddie Barrow. Inked by Eber Ferreira and colors by Andriano Lucas. So we start off with the line is, I don't believe in ghosts. And she's a ballerina and she's talking about how, you know, how long she's been a ballerina, how long she's been obsessed with it, and just how another ballerina gave her the key and she, she comes and practices early and all the other dancers talk to her about how they feel what. And you see like this dark shadow person like following her throughout these few panels. Until at one point where she's practicing, she turns around and she sees orphan and then that person smoke bombs and takes off and then you see that the opening title page and that it's orphan Cass is going back to her apartment and sees her friends it's this really interesting kind of inner monologue from orphan about like i can feel their emotions i can see their feelings and they're caring for me but i don't know how to put into words i don't know how to say it you know i don't know how i feel about what i am you know kind of thing it's very interesting and she just goes no and takes off her friends being worried and you know you get a little backstory father turned me into a weapon all this other stuff like i killed my mom's best she sees the bat signal up in the sky and so she goes and takes off and sees i like how it's like gordon leaning on there like this wasn't my idea that arrives and it's the mayor and he's like on his swarmy self and i like how batman's like is this a confession amidst all these swarmy things he's done and how gotham has kind of twisted him in a way but now he wants to change yeah because he had like not quite a heart attack that kind of scared him straight i guess and all of a sudden Gordon's like hands up because he sees Orphan had been spying on them and he's like oh it was like a dark shadow but Batman knows who it was but then it cuts away Orphan explain why she likes ballet and you know I someone who studied ballet for a long time and was like a competitive dancer it's really interesting I like this whole kind of aspect it talks about how the difference between a ballet dancer and a trained assassin killer such as Orphan is that the body twitches that you would the slight movements you'd use just to enact a killing blow dancers instead used to emote emotion and art and 
depth. It's like this, and she's like, I try to take those movements and move them into my fighting, but the message is lost. They just die. They don't see it. They don't appreciate her art. She's off rescuing some child trafficked. A trafficking ring. And the bat stops her from going step further. He's like, they're rescued. It's enough. And then... Well, she talks about how she has to, like, stop herself from doing that. She sees, like, a million ways to, like, fucking kill Batman at this second, you know? And she has to, like, constantly fight not to do the easy thing, which is just to kill people. But on the flip side, she also talks about how he sees her and there's trust and there's... But there's not. Like, the whole range of emotions and that. It's a really interesting dynamic of interpersonal relations and trust and just like insight on who you are. He saw something in her. But then there's a part with Clayface. Yay, Clayface. And he's talking with Batwing and they changed his device that lets him keep his mind to make it smaller so it's more um, discreet if he goes out. Kind of sad because he's just like, oh, the headaches go away too because he transforms back into Basil. And then they have to kind of break it to him that it's latching onto your DNA, but every time it does that to force you into that form, it's using up that DNA and there's not much left there. Because he's like, I can go back and act again. And they basically crush his hopes and dreams. Poor Clayface. He's caught between two different hells. If he stays in his human form, he eventually won't be able to go back into that form. And if he stays his Clayface, he goes crazy. So he's fucked. Yeah. Very tragic. He goes back to the dance hall where the girl was practicing the police there and filed a complaint that there was someone lurking in there. And all the things that Orphan had been concerned about herself or how she was viewed. This person, the dancer who I could see how she would see that, you know, was an intruder. She was scared, but she's like, I swear they wanted to hurt me. Well, when you turn around, you see some creepy lady in a bondage suit behind you. Like, maybe just go there without your murder suit on <laughs> and dance. Hearing her say that, I think it reinforces that negative opinion of herself that Orphan has been battling with this whole issue. You hear it again kind of thing from someone else. Yeah, I thought that was you know a little harsh, but then, the, oh, I love the panel of her just dancing oh i think that's an amazing panel it's beautiful so pretty and it's so accurate like they really studied dancers and they nailed it good job artists while she's doing that is it shiva she's looking out over with her binoculars being super creepy stalker well that's her mom well it's not that she sees her she hears her she understands her dance you know which is mama's coming to town probably the most dangerous fighter in the dc universe shiva shiva yeah. We move on to, it looks like they're in a huge cathedral church, which we find out later is just really a simulation. And we see, how do you say it? Is Asriel praying and doing his thing. And then him and Batwing are like fighting and defeat this thing. And they come out and you realize it's a simulation. And Batwing's like, how'd you do that? I've never been able to get up there. And all you did was change the scenario. What does that have to do? Or this, the location. And there's this big talk about what his suit does and what his power does and what things about belief belief and then like the ai and i don't know it's very technical i'm trying to like just explain it in very generic terms i think this story makes a lot more sense if you mm. know things about Azrael to begin with like they don't really explain all that i mean they spend a lot of time explaining but their explanations require you to know something to start yeah. with yeah. i mean it's a really interesting idea what he's saying like you have to give in to it for it to work and it's a very interesting read but it is something that i almost feel like it's harder to explain you kind of have to read it for yourself but back and forth and they're trying to talk about it and then there's the interesting concept where he's like well if that's you why hasn't something basically taken over and kind of like a foreshadowing the last page it goes signal received because they're gonna go do something he's gonna go into the simulation again but without his suit 
this time. And as they leave and the suit's all plugged up and ready, it's like it was listening to them. It's like, oh, that's a good idea. Let me do that. I thought it was a really good Azrael story, which we haven't seen in a while. The big picture. At least Alfred is mentioned in this one. <laughs> He's trying to talk to Alfred, talking about, you know, whatever he was fighting had reinforced teeth and he was right. On the other side of the comm, it's Red Robin or it's Tim who answers. Yum. <laughs> he basically confronts Batman and he wants to have a talk with him and he goes down the list listing every different either sidekick and what they've turned into and what they do now currently because if you're not talking about Batman's parents dying it's got to be how many fucking people he's gotten killed <laughs> you set these people up you create this network of information and influence you're basically making your own private justice league now with the group that you're working at with the Belfry and I just want to know what What's going on? I need to ask you bluntly, why are we preparing for war? Finding out a bit about a DC event that's coming up, which is Dark Days. Yep. Yes. And Batman being very Batman. I'm going to give it three. I don't believe in ghosts. I will give it three and a half. Shiva is here. I'm going to give it three and a half. We're not all nocturnal, you know. That was a good one. Also, go see the Batman Lego movie. Lots of really great <laughs> inside jokes for comic book fans. Kite Man. Kite Man. This next one was also fighting it out for pick of the week. I thought this one was pretty damn good. I was surprised by this one, actually. Okay, so we got Kingpin number one, Marvel Comics Born Against, written by Matthew Rosenberg, pencils and inks by Ben Torres, colors by Jordan Boyd. So we start off with this boxing match going on in a boxing gym, and there's this reporter there who's talked with the old salty trainers in the corner over, like, who's gonna win? She's going for the guy who's nobody's going and she's like you know you guys don't have any vision this guy's got it then he gets jacked she's like you know kind of like consoling the, the boxer who lost she's telling him oh you know these guys don't have the balls to step in the ring with one of the best you did you, like the balls to actually get up and fight this guy who nobody else would and they're gonna talk shit don't even worry about him at one point somebody comes up and tells her that my employer was wanting to speak with you you know but he doesn't want to discuss it here you know two thousand bucks an hour or something like that come talk with him so she takes a ride out to this mansion out in the middle of nowhere encounters kingpin basically whipping ass <laughs> it's kind of a funny scene because like i oftentimes forget that like kingpin's actually like a badass in hand to hand and so he's <laughs> like schooling kung fu school he's super polite and he's like you know thanks for coming out here it also like kind of reinforces that kingpin is not just a big fat dude that he is super strong yeah. and muscular yeah, everybody thinks he's a big old fatty kind of like because of the way he's drawn he's drawn as like this big thick guy but no he's actually like super Super, like, like that's one of his abilities. He's, yeah. he's like actually like super strong, super muscular. Like he actually is a bad motherfucker. But anyways, we're digressing on that one. So he is basically talking and, you know, thank you for coming out. He's talking about how he wants to have her write a book for him. He doesn't want her to like write. He doesn't want something that's going to like tell just like the nice side of him and like try and spin him off as some sort of nice guy. He wants her to like actually like talk about who he really is and how he's trying to like turn over a new leaf. And, you know, of course, she's like got her reservations, especially because she knows obviously everybody knows who he is apparently. He's a well-known kingpin. So he's just basically like, you know, come out, hang out with me, get to know me a little bit. And before you say yes or no, like, hang out with me for a while and get to know me a bit. She leaves, she goes home, and he like sends her over these two dresses to make sure that she's like properly dressed for this event that he's having. So, you know, pick one or the other. So she shows up and everybody mistakes her for basically like an escort. <laughs> yeah, she gets pissed. She runs into Daredevil as he's there in his normal 
whole casual self and he like gets pissed her because he's like he's like wait you're hanging out with kingpin or whatever his real name is what was it wilson wilson fisk he tells her he's like nobody ever comes to fisk because they're interested in him they're coming into him because they don't have it's like their last resort you know they've got nowhere else to turn she's like don't you have some teenagers to try as adults <laughs> <laughs> trying not to drink basically she goes and gets a scotch soda and an apple juice <laughs> like she's not sure if she wants to go back on to drinking or stick with apple juice when she's talking to matt murdoch she blames that the way she's acting is on because she's drinking and then as she as she walks away he's like yeah apple juice will really do that to you because you know his, his sense of smell is heightened because he's blind yeah. i thought that was pretty neat she leaves she ends up walking out and kingpin shows up at her apartment he's like oh i'm sorry that i offended you and da, da, da. so he goes you know his twin donut's still open so he takes her out and he takes her to takes her to this donut store he talks about how this is where he had his first job and she's like i totally can picture you making him donuts he's like no i was, I was running dope <laughs> so he's basically like you know r- running narcotics out of that and then he's like the second reason is that there's good donuts here but once again she's still like having all these reservations about him and stuff and you know she's like i know the things you've done and he's like what things he goes yeah i've killed people and he goes it's true i'm not proud of it you know i've served my time He's, like, trying to, like, get her to, like, formulate her own opinions because it's, like, she's, like, saying you're a thug in a low life and stuff. Like, everybody's telling, you know, you're a scumbag. He's, like, well, what do you think? He's, like, I am those, or I was. That's the reason why I needed to tell my story is so that people can see that I've changed. You know, I'm a reformed man. (laughs) Very classic kingpin, too. You know, I mean, that's the thing. It's, like, he doesn't need to just muscle you in if he doesn't have to. He's very good at, like, convincing people that, oh, I'm not such a bad guy, you know? It's, like, oh, hey, let's take a walk through this park here some like guy who's drunk like hey you got a dollar and he gives him like a 20 and then the guy like comes back for more because he sees that he's got like this big old roll of cash pulls a knife on him and then he's like oh here here's more money oh here's my watch here's this here's that and then like the guy like tells him you know don't be places where you don't belong and like takes off he's basically like slowly like wooing her using these tactics they make it seem like that you know he's just being super nice but it's like it seems way too set up you know later is that she leaves her house and then there's like this crime scene and then oh look it's just another dead junkie and the guy who happened to have accosted them is the guy who kingpin gave his watch and his money and all that shit he's got a needle in his arm and he's dead he doesn't have the watch miraculously yeah and the needle is like stabbed into like the top of his arm which you know that's really not where like the veins are it'd be on the inside of your arm yeah <laughs> so I think that clearly someone murdered him. You fell down an elevator shaft onto some bullets. <laughs> This one, when I was reading it, I kept reading it as if Vincent D'Onofrio was as the kingpin, which I don't know if that is just because his performance in the Netflix series was so good that I now see the characters like that, or if they've written the character more to match that. I'm not sure which one it is, but I couldn't shake that association when I was reading it. The things I liked about it are what you're saying as well, the kind of ambiguity with kingpin i really like that in comics where you don't know what the absolute truth is i like that writing style i think that is more realistic you know because in real life you don't know truth all the time either you know so i think stories where it keeps you kind of guessing as to what's really going on are interesting to me so i mean i almost made this one my pick of the week um i really liked this one so i i'm a big fan of this last week i think they put out bullseye and that was fucking horrible so i didn't have big expectations for kingpin but it exceeded all my expectations let's read them up so yeah i really like this one too i'm gonna give it four first job i ever had was here 
I will give it four. It's just another dead junkie. So those were the books we read this week. To check out our other podcasts, Broke Gaming and Cut the Cord, as well as other nerd shenanigans, go check out fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter or at Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Make sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds.